What's up, everybody? Welcome to Screen Geeks Radio, episode 173. This is Dave. This is Barry. This is Gunnar Jensen. <laughs> wow. All right, then. There we go. I, you always come up with a good one, sir. Okay, this week we are talking about films that are critically maligned. I'm not talking about in, in, in like, you know, regular people hate the movie, but films that critics hated yet we think are good. It's essentially a defend your movie episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's going to be really interesting, I think. But before we get to all that, let's go ahead and talk about what we watched this week. Um, I guess I'll go first since I watched one thing and then lost all desire to watch film. I didn't even finish the one thing. Um, I, I feel like I haven't taken enough bullets for the team recently. So I decided <laughs> didn't to know the team needed to be taking bullets. No, well, it's just, it's kind of a point of pride. You know what's so, Okay, you got to watch a crappy movie. So I decided I was going to try watching Atlas Shrugged. Part one. Part one. No, it's there's no need to put part one in there because there's there. Here's the problem. I hate talking about movies I didn't finish, but I got like a half hour, forty five minutes into this, and just I I gave up hope to live because it was so awful. You missed out on the apocalyptic ending, Dave. Did I? I'm completely serious. Yeah, there's like really? a big explosion at the end. Yeah, like something actually does happen at the end. So you actually finished end. this movie? Yeah, I did. I did. I suffered through it. Yeah. So 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 Barry Worst gets the 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 purple heart of screen geeks for the week. <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 just. I think the worst thing about it is that it's so unexceptional. Okay. The performances yeah. are like the the lead female gives such a. If she was asleep, it would have been the same performance, yes. and just such a poor performance. And you got actors like Michael Lerner in there. I mean, there's, there's some really good actors in this movie, and they're just completely and totally wasted. And it just it feels like wasted in every way, shape, and form. Yeah, it's, it just it feels like a like a sci-fi TV movie, you know. But but without the without, without the, the mosquito without the shark to push, yeah. I mean, it's just it's not see, interesting. With those movies, there's at least some payoff. All right, I get to see this, and no. No, so because of that, I have like I lost all my will to watch any more movies. Oh, really? What I usually That's, do. So wow. Yeah, I think it, it's it one of the better week. bad movies no, that came out last year. Okay, we're fixing that tomorrow because we're doing a double feature. But you know, yep, that's yep. besides that. Yeah, that's that's about all I got. I oh wow, yeah. All right, Ethan, I, I know that you're going to pick up the slack because I could be watching like 15 movies in a week, and you're still I've still got slack to pick up. So what have you been watching, sir? Um, watched a lot of Asian movies this week. Uh. First one I watched, uh, Unknown Pleasures, which is a 2002 film by uh, Jia Zongke, who is one of the uh, best directors in the world right now from China. Uh, this film concerns, uh, it's sort of a youth film, but it's set in China, and uh, it's kind of set against the backdrop of Beijing's uh, kind of cultural development, and as the, uh, it was announced in like 2001 that they were getting the Olympic Games, and Beijing is a city, and it's shot on um, video, and it's sort of it's sort of hard to get used to the look at first, but once you do, it's it's a pr- quite a good film. I definitely recommend uh, the work of Jia Zongke. Uh, next, I watched inspired by a trailer that came out this week. I watched House of Dark Shadows, which is a film version of the TV show. Yeah. Have you ever seen this? I saw it years ago, and I found it terrifying. But I was, you know. Five <laughs> when I saw it. How does it hold up? Uh, it's interesting because I'm get like I'm guessing this this film isn't very representational of the show itself. Hmm. Does it have Barnabas Collins? Yeah, it does. But I'm just saying, it seems like it's more of a gothic. It's like a pretty. It's a good like decent gothic horror film. Okay. But it seems like from what I've read about the show, it's sort of more of a 
weird, kind of humorous. Or maybe I'm just basing this off the trailer, but the scene, <laughs> <laughs> at least we'll, it's, we'll it's like there. you know, it's a soap opera. So yeah, but uh, yeah, it was a uh, it was it was a good watch, a good gothic horror film. Uh, next, I watched uh, Game Change. How is that? Yeah, that's the Sarah um, film. It's uh, it's definitely. I'll say this that. It's a lot of stuff we you pretty much already know. A lot of it's like most of the conversations or the movies are things you assume that everyone said and whatnot. And but it is kind of interesting, and I think why it is worth watching is because the performances. Um, I think Julianne Moore in this. If she if this had been like a theatrically released film, I think she'd be like a shoe in. She'd be a lock for an Oscar. Mm. Like her Palin is incredible. Cool. And uh, Woody Harrelson is amazing in it too, and uh, uh, oh, uh, uh, Ed Harris as McCain, he's good too. Uh, again, it's 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 a lot you already know, but it's it's a pretty entertaining watch, I'd say. Hmm. Okay. Cool. Uh, next, I watched. This was the first film I've been meaning to check out. This director, uh, he's one of the most acclaimed directors in the world. Uh, I'm just trying to. <laughs> pronounce his name i don't want to butcher it here uh okay let's i'm gonna practice here who sian chiao i think that's how you said he's a uh, taiwanese okay uh if, you guys are you familiar at all with his work or <laughs> i'd have to see it i mean nothing wrong with your enunciation but i'd probably have to see the name written down i'm not sure if i've seen his work okay uh anyway i watched uh his film a Time to Live and a Time to Die, which is an autobiographical film about his family moving uh, to tai- Taiwan after the war mm-hmm. from China. And uh, it's an extremely, like, Ozu-like drama, as cool. it's chronically, obviously, themes of family and the pacing. And it's sort of, at first, you're, it's it's very slow, as a lot of, you know, kind of art house Asian cinema. And you're like, eh, am I really into this? But it's slowly really captivates you and and it really emotionally devastates you as well so i I, this film was to me is absolutely amazing i'm definitely gonna watch more of his work cool uh next i watched uh breaking news which is a 2004 hong kong action movie from johnny toe have you guys seen any of johnny toe's work i don't know the name sounds familiar i'm just trying to remember i'm so i'm going to say no just to be safe (laughs) Tarantino is like a big proponent of this guy. Like he's, it's like one of those things where all the DVDs of his movies have like quotes from him on them. Okay. And but uh, is is it justified? Yeah this this movie is amazing. Uh, hmm. It's basically it starts out with this bank robbery and uh, the uh, news team they capture it and it makes the police look bad. And basically it ch- charts uh, the poli- the robbers escaping to this apartment the police trying to catch them and the uh, news team trying to document it all. And again, the film is like, it's this juggling act. But the thing is that Johnny Toe has just this incredible, like, formal control. Like, it's like how he shoots action, how he, and even I think he's incredible with, like, characters and themes. There's, uh, the film opens with, like, this uh, long take action shootout. It's like one of the best action scenes I've ever seen. I, uh, I remember a film professor had shown a clip that clip in a class last year, being like, "Whoa!" But yeah, definitely, this movie is awesome. What's his style like? I mean, you know, like the, the cliches. Like, is it like John Woo? I mean, what's what's his approach? You think? 
I think he's kind of, he actually reminds me a bit of uh, John McTiernan in terms of his direction. Great. Terrific. Wow, okay. Story first. I like that. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely check it out. Um, and last, I watched uh, a film by Richard Lester, legendary director of Superman 3. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love how you framed it that way, sir. Just well done. So, which film did you watch? I watched The Knack and How to Get It. Oh, I haven't which seen that one. was the winner of the 1966 uh, Palme d'Or. It's basically, uh, it's it's a lot like A Hard Day's Night, It's but it's set um, in London, obviously, and it's this guy who, he's kind of like an awkward, kind of geeky guy, he's a school teacher, but his best friend, or not his best friend, his friend at least, is a real ladies' man, and he's like, but he, this new girl comes to town, and he likes her, and he wants him to kind of give him some advice on how to get with the ladies and it, it's extremely like french new wave inspired hmm. like all most like a lot of lester 60s movies and just it's it's extremely hilarious i it's just it's one of the, it's a really great just movie to kick back and watch very entertaining sweet definitely recommend hmm. that okay cool that's all i watched fair enough all right barry what you been watching sir Saw a documentary called Blind Spot, Hitler's Secretary, and it's exactly what you think it is. It is uh, the recollections of Adolf Hitler's secretary uh, not long before she passed away. Um, it's not quite Shoah. It's not one of those documentaries that I would say is essential only because the subject herself, even though her stories are really, really quite chilling and, and it's so complex and disturbing to hear her talk about Hitler in tones that are both uh, – really revulsed but also kind of fond because this was her former boss the problem with the documentary is that it's strictly one static shot the camera just stays on her without any variety at all uh and she mentions names like Goebbels and Himmler and whatnot and and Ava Braun and if you don't know who these people are you're completely lost they really could have used uh it's not that this something like this needs to be flashier or stylish but this is one of those documentaries that really could have used some newsreel footage or just some you know some photographs interspersed to give you an idea of some context and you know some history because uh, those who really don't know much about World War II I mean I know it's kind of impossible now since we've been bombarded with 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 World War II and pop culture but it just it just seems like this is one of those documentaries that could have been so much richer as it is it's a real valuable testimony from this really unique woman but uh, just uh, as far as documentaries go, I found it was its presentation was really lacking. Okay. Uh, let's see. I saw a Steven Seagal film called Half Past Dead, <laughs> which I got to say it's from Franchise Pictures. Franchise is uh, this is the studio that was founded by Eli Samaha, who at one point uh, was a I believe he got into the business very much like Tommy Wiseau being a being a clothing guy. He at one point was married to Tia Carrera, lucky bastard, and he is the financier <laughs> of films such as Battlefield Earth, The Art of War, uh, Sylvester Stallone's Driven. Other than Sean Penn's The Pledge and David Mamet's Spartan, uh, franchise films really has never released a really good movie, in my opinion, for whatever that's worth. But I got to say, considering the track record of this company, which is that they have a reputation for having huge budgets and making these movies that look like they cost like 10 million instead of 75 or 80 million. Half Past Dead is by far the funniest film in the whole oeuvre of franchise films. It's funnier than Battlefield Earth. It's funnier than Driven. 
Steven Seagal is playing a former Russian agent. I say former because even though he makes a big deal that he's Russian, you never hear a Russian accent once. Ja Rule is his partner in crime in this film. And the movie is bookended by Ja Rule teaching Steven Seagal the proper way to say, I. That's the bookend of the film. It opens and closes with that. I'm not making this up. It, uh, you sure you want to save this for your critically maligned list? <laughs> no, no, no. This is this is a terrible film, but I would watch it again in a heartbeat. Morris Chestnut plays the bad guy, and he wears a cape, very much like Neo from the Matrix movies. It's a terrible, terrible film. It's it's probably the worst film that Steven Seagal has ever done, but man, is it fun. A lot, a lot of fun. And the last two I wanted to throw out really quickly, revisited Danny DeVito's Hoffa, which I haven't seen in quite some time. Uh, I love him as a director, and I was really curious to see how it held up. The screenplay by David Mamet is still a real problem with this movie. It has a it has an inability of kind of cluing us in on who these characters are. It kind of just goes from one scene to another without a sense of, of, of character development. The the history is a little rickety. We know that it's kind of inaccurate. Uh, so why is it, why am I recommending this film? Uh, Nicholson's performance, Jack Nicholson's performance as Jimmy Hoffa is still pretty amazing. Uh, everybody in terms of the performance is just top notch in this movie including Dan DeVito who's wonderful as well as the director and the direction by DeVito is so inventive and stylish and playful it's it's everything that you'd expect from the director of The War of the Roses and Throw Mama from the Train DeVito picks some really offbeat and some really interesting camera angles there are times where he's evoking Hitchcock uh, there's the times where he's just evoking film noir in general. It's such a rich movie to watch, uh, just for the choices that he makes as a director. This was obviously his big, big epic movie, and he has these huge, huge scenes where he's clearly trying to evoke like John Ford, and it's just just awesome to watch. Um, so Hoff is not a perfect movie, but I definitely recommend it. Oh, have you ever heard the story Paul Thomas Anderson told about that movie? No. He was at NYU. He had just enrolled, and he was in a class, and the assignment was to write like a few pages of, of the script that would establish a character without any dialogue. Okay. And he was already a little testy about this NYU, so he took pages from the script of Hoffa, because the script hadn't been made into a movie yet, and he handed them in, the scene where it's like a, a Jack Nicholson or Danny DeVito is like lighting um, matches between his fingers to yeah. keep him awake. Yeah. And uh, he got a C, he got a C plus, <laughs> so at that point he decided to <laughs> drop out. <laughs> okay then a C plus submitting a David Mamet script that's great that's wow <laughs> that's okay story. and the last one I saw the Roger Corman produced film Carnosaur which is now available to watch on Netflix much more interesting film to talk about than it is to actually watch okay okay this is a film uh, the, the story with this movie that everybody knows is that you know Corman this is the guy who quickly puts movies into fruition as soon as he knows a bigger movie and bigger and better movies coming along. Well, he sniffed Jurassic Park coming miles away, so he said, we have to make a dinosaur movie first and faster and quicker and better. So he spent one one whole million dollars making this movie. <laughs> and it stars, Which for him is big budget. Oh, yeah, that's that's huge for Corman. And it stars Diane Ladd, of course, the mother of Laura Dern, the star of Jurassic Park, so there you go, the connection. Uh, it's a dreadful, dreadful, dreadful film. The the dinosaur effects couldn't be more phony. I mean, like really, really obvious rod puppets and whatnot. What I will always remember from this film, and I will certainly take away from it, are the many scenes of women giving birth to gooey dinosaur eggs. There are multiple scenes in this movie of women going into labor and giving birth to gooey, green, goopy, slimy dinosaur eggs that they crack and these little velociraptors pop out. It's that kind wow. of movie. Wow, so, that's spectacular. Yeah, I can't say I recommend it, but um, I'm glad I experienced it at least <laughs> once in my life. So that's Okay, fair enough, fair enough. All right, well, uh, let's move into what came out in theaters this past weekend. Uh, currently the number one movie in America, Jonah Hill's 21 Jump Street. 
in limited release. It's not you, Channing Tatum's 21 Jump Street? No, but I got to say, you know, uh, Ethan Ethan kind of asked me this last week, and, it, and he's absolutely right. He, uh, uh, Channing Tatum is quite good in this film, I must say. Okay. Uh, I think he's got a knack for comedy. I think, I think, uh, I, I think drama and... Everything else kind of eludes him, but I think comedy is, is 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 his thing, and I hope he does more of it based on his performance in this, which is very good. Okay. In limited release, you got Will Ferrell's Casa de Mi Padre, which uh, which was released very small, very limited release, only 350 screens. Hawaii didn't even get it this weekend. All right. Uh, Jeff Who Lives at Home, the new film from the Duplass brothers, starring Jason Siegel and Ed Helms, and another lovely comedy. I really liked Jeff Who Lives at Home. Very good film. Please check it out if it's near you. Finally, uh, in limited release, you've got The Kid with the Bike, critically acclaimed new film. Cool. All That's right. It. So, so did you get to see anything this weekend, Ethan? It's a uh, Twenty One Jump Street. And and are, is it as good as everyone's been saying to you, including Barry? Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, if I had to complain about something, is that I think, I think some of the action movie satire is a little stale at this point. Hmm. Like jokes, like I just after Hot Fuzz and the other guys, some of like the kind of making fun of buddy cop movies. It's a yeah. little a little been there done that but overall this is a very funny movie and i yeah i think channing tatum is awesome in it <laughs> he is i would agree with you about the satire i think there, there's a little bit of a limitation to it in this movie and you're right because i think it doesn't i don't think it's quite as uh i almost use the word genius to describe the other guys but i would say that what the heck i mean the other guys i think is pretty is, is one of the golden standards of this kind of movie and I think 21 Jump Street doesn't quite get there, but I think it's pretty dang close. But yeah, it, it, it is, I think we're getting to the point where we can kind of move on making jokes about, you know, well, the other guys also John Woo and... The, 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 the other guys literally jumps off a building. I mean, it, it, it goes places that I don't think a lot of movies are this willing movie to go. Is, well, there's some really crazy stuff in 21 okay. Jump Street too, though. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, the humor, it, it's kind of like the other guys in the sense that not only is the humor really smart and clever, but it's also very strange. There's some really, really strange jokes in this movie and some real nice surprises. I think the the biggest problem I had with it, and I'm curious if you felt this way, Ethan, I thought there were a couple of plot strands that didn't really go anywhere. There was a really nice setup of Ellie Kemper having a crush, uh, the teacher who had a crush on uh, Channing Tatum's character, and I really wanted, I, that was just, I thought a really juicy subplot that they unfortunately felt like they got dropped or just kind of lost in the editing room. And the whole thing about about the Peter Pan high school production, I, I don't know. I, I really wanted something a little better than what they gave us, which I thought was just kind of, uh, kind of, uh, generic. Yeah, it's not the it's not the funniest part of the movie. Yeah. No, I do I do like the scene where uh, Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum are like fighting while. Uh, yeah, well, production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's that's good. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's some things that could have been a lot sharper and a lot stronger. Um, but no, but overall, it's not a bad film. No, no. I think it's a really good film. I mean, I think it's the first comedy of the year. I think that people really should go see. I mean, no question. It's it's raunchy stuff, but it. Uh, yeah, it's it's really smart. And I think for the first thirty minutes, I was just laughing nonstop. And, it's, and uh, yeah, I think the the middle of it lost me a little bit. The, some of the jokes I thought were trying a little too hard, and kind of some of the stuff that Ethan's alluded to. But uh, yeah, I think it ends really strong too. And they're already talking about a sequel, and I'm I'm down for that. You're especially on board? If, especially if they bring back the Richard Grieco character Booker, as you remember, who had his own Booker's series. in it. No, no, no. Oh, okay. But I mean, they I was really, be like what? Yeah, they need to bring back Booker. Like, have Booker be a character in the sequel and kind of like spin off to Booker the way Booker got his own series on Fox. Oh, Richard Grieco. Richard Grieco, man. Wow. Possibilities around. Oh, speaking speaking at the Johnny Depp cameo, I thought it was quite good. Yeah, I thought that was wonderful. It was a real nice surprise. 
All right. I, I wasn't sure that was actually happening. It happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wasn't even sure if it was going to happen too because it's very late in the movie. But it's uh, it's 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 a real surprise, even if you're expecting it. Cool. Right on. All right. Well, then uh, let's go ahead and talk about what's hitting uh, home video this week. Let's see. This week in home video, uh, David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Very good film if you haven't seen it. Uh, the Muppets, which yes. we've certainly given a lot of love in this show. Very good film. Tinker Taylor's Soldier Spy, starring Gary Oldman and Colin Firth, and a number of wonderful, wonderful actors. I can't wait to revisit this movie, because I want to see if it holds up on a second viewing. Did I you, know you're going to think it doesn't. No, no, no. I, I wasn't going to say that. I was just thinking about uh, what I got sent in the mail um, last November. Uh, the studio sent me this check. It was kind of like this big flow chart for dummies who can't understand the movie. So it's like... It's and you know and I I'll admit to it I, I needed the chart. It uh, it helps you. It has like character. It has like pictures of each characters and who they are and kind of outlines everything. So it's kind of like Tinker Tailor for dummies. And I'd be curious to see the film with that chart on my lap. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Battle Royale finally the complete collection on DVD. My pre-order that I canceled. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Jonah Hill in the Sitter, which I want to see. I want to give that film a shot. It was in and out of theater so quickly last fall. Uh, Roman Polanski's Carnage. See it with lowered expectations, but I think it's a very strong film. On Criterion, the Russian film Letter Never Sent, and the wonderful documentary The War Room. And finally, Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes 2. Why is this one of the most remarkable films Wes Craven has ever made? Not only is it one of the few sequels Wes Craven's made outside of the screen movies, but it has a flashback from the point of view of, of a, a dog. dog. That's... Of a dog. His Cinematic history. <laughs> there it is. I, wow. Never done okay. before. Right on. Fair enough. All right, let's move into news, which is going to be dominated by trailers, but we'll, we'll, let's take the trailers for last. Okay. Um, I know each of you have a couple stories. I know you've got a, a couple stories, stories, Barry. Just a couple. Yeah. Why can't I talk today? Okay. I'll let you go ahead and, and start off with those, and we'll get Ethan to his story. Well, let's see. I believe it's Alias Grace. I hope I got the title right. That's a new film that uh, Sarah Polly is directing based on a novel with Margaret Atwood. I'm really embarrassed. I'm a huge Atwood fan. This is like one of the few novels of hers I have not read. Uh, but I love Atwood. This, of course, is the author of The Handmaid's Tale and Cat's Eye and a lot of other really wonderful books. Uh, Sarah Polly, needless to say, this is this is a tremendous director. Uh, her debut film, Away Away from um, Away from Her, was one of my favorite films of its year. Uh, Sarah Polly is such a talent. I'm really really curious to see what she does with the with, with the work from Margaret Atwood. Not familiar with the author at all, so I'm I'm, I'm going to plead. That's ignorance. okay. That's okay. All right, what's next? <laughs> uh, a film uh, that Robert Altman made back in the late 50s resurfaced at a flea market. At a flea market? Apparently it's the first film he ever directed, and somebody just going through some movies available at a flea market uh, saw a title and said, huh, Modern Football, what is that? It's this basically a short film, a 26-minute film, that Robert Altman did apparently back in his film student days, but it is legitimately the first film he has ever made. So was it like like a studio released VHS, or was it like you know copied off somewhere else? Or it didn't specify whether okay. it was like a reel to reel or what it was, but apparently he saw the title and was like, "Huh, Modern Football," and directed <laughs> by Robert Altman. And sure enough, he checked the records. It is his long lost first film. Wow, yeah, that's cool. That's cool, Ethan. I know you have the news of the week, sir. There is a new Garbage Pail Kids movie in development. I'm still trying to figure out why. Especially, you know, with, 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 the, with the rousing financial success the first film was, what, 20 years ago? I was just thinking about that film the other day. Um, it really is. I think about it every day. Oh, every day? <laughs> well, you, you know, whenever anybody asks me, what's the worst movie ever seen, that, that's always my answer. I, I really have never experienced anything like that, where five minutes into it, the opening credits haven't finished, and I knew I hated that movie. 
hate wow. it with all my heart. And every time, I, I, yep. I just say I hope this remake though means there is a, a reissue, like a Blu-ray re-release <laughs> of the original film. There you go. I hope I would love Mackenzie Austin and whoever else was involved in that film to do a commentary. I really would like to hear their thoughts on the on the original. Get Maybe. their side of the story. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> you know, that was a bad year for film. I mean, that was the same year as Leonard Part Six and Teen Wolf Two. I mean, really, '87 oh. was a was a tough year for American cinema for all the good stuff that came out that year. But yeah, Garbage Pail Kids film. Though I got to say, this is this is promising because how many times have we said, you know, why don't they remake bad movies instead of good movies? Well, there you go. You, you cannot. You but, can't, so, but some premises can't, just can't be rescued. The bar can't go any lower than the Garbage Pail Kids. Movie. I know. I just I don't think the the premise. You have to have at least a semi solid premise too. Well, you know, it's it's strange because this is it hasn't the Garbage Pail Kids are strictly like you know. Our, our thing, Dave. I mean, yeah. like, it, you know. Well, I used to collect the cards. Absolutely. I used to collect them too. I still have a, a batch in a rubber band somewhere, but yeah. yeah. Uh, what in the. Sorry, I was like looking at a page. I didn't know there was like a video on it that started playing. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. No worries. Yeah, it, it, it is specifically our year, our, our time, and no one I know who saw that movie liked it. Well, also, like, who's the? What is the projected audience? Unless they're going to bring back Garbage Pail Kids in a really big way, because you know you can still get Garbage Pail Kids at comic shops. They're still doing these subsequent. Releases. Are they really? Yeah, they've got new series, but still, like. But I mean, the the whole the whole series was predicated on Cabbage Patch Kids, right? Which haven't been around again in like a couple decades. Yeah. So. It... Yeah, because now, I mean, the only appeal to Garbage Pail Kids is just the name. So you got stickers with, like, Smelly Telly and, you know, Slobby Bobby. And, you know, that's like, oh, great, my name is Bobby. I've got a sticker with this. You know, otherwise, wh- why would anybody want There's no Garbage reference for it culturally anymore. Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't see this actually going anywhere. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. I, Stranger I things we'll see. have happened. They made a movie based on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland. So They knows? made four of them, and one of them was good. Yeah. All right, sorry. I, I don't mean to open up that whole can of worms again. <laughs> All right, we've got a whole bunch of trailers to talk about. Um, Prometheus, did you see the, the, the extended trailer, Ethan? Yep. Are you as psyched for this movie? As, uh, well, I'm, I'm probably about as psyched as you are now. It's probably the better way to put it. Because I've been like, oh, it looks pretty good. But after that trailer, oh, my goodness. And, Barry, you haven't ta- seen it, so we're not even going to mention any potential spoilers <laughs> in it. Because I respect it. I understand. No, no, I appreciate it. I, I just, I, you know... I'm all about the tease. I want to be teased. You know, I, I don't want to see anything else. You know, hey, I love that everybody's all excited about a Ridley Scott movie. When, I didn't think that would happen in a while, so I'm 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 thrilled that everybody's like crazy for the new Scott movie. But now I don't want to see anything. I want to be surprised. I want to next time I see Prometheus, I wanted to be in June. Fair enough. So so what did you think of the trailer, Ethan? It was awesome. It is. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's. I don't care if they say like they're. Well, it's not really a prequel for Aliens. Yeah, it is. It well, is. not to spoil too much, but... No, I guess that would be a spoiler to Barry, right? It, I, it's definitely a, a prequel. I think there's no way it could possibly be not be a prequel. This so. little dancing chestburster from Spaceballs show up? Yes, how did you know? the last you see before like, da 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 How did you know, sir? Yeah, do, Jack, they play any, do they play any Creed over the trailer? <laughs> Can you take me higher? Wow. No, 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 no. Wow. No? You went there. No, no. That's no? okay. What music do they play on the trailer? Or is it, is it that alien music again? It, it, pretty much, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. It's, there it's, was a bit of CCR in there. <laughs> <laughs> on the bayou. <laughs> see, I have to start. I'm starting to get mental things going no, since we can't talk no, about no, Hunger Games till Thursday. No, no, no. After we see it tomorrow, I want to start posting fake spoilers on my Facebook. Just fake spoilers? People. Oh, yes. <laughs> 
just to mess with people. Well, you've read the book, so you know what the spoilers are. You oh, know yeah. who dies and yeah. Yeah, and who lives and yeah. Yeah, yeah and then who joins a boy a boy band at the end and mm-hmm. it's it's outstanding. Yep, yep. All right, um moving on to that, did either of you see the new Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter trailer? No. No. <laughs> I'm waiting for the Steven Spielberg Lincoln trailer. I don't care about the vampire. You know, hunter. I really can't blame you, but the the fil- it's, it gives us more of a look at the film, and it doesn't look like it's going to be this wink-wink, nudge-nudge, big comedy the whole way through, which I actually appreciate. I mean, it's going to be fun. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> it's going to be historical. No, yeah, just like Inglorious <laughs> Bastards was. Um, it, the thing is that it looks like it's taking itself seriously enough to make to make it look like it's going to be a really fun movie. Did he say four score and seven no, years ago? No, no. No, okay. No, they don't go quite that far. But that, that that would be a oh never mind. Okay, screw it. Let's let's get to the big one. Well, who's the director? Let me ask. Who's the director? Uh, Timor shoot, the guy who did Wanted and Night Watch and Day Watch. Oh, that guy. Yeah. Huh. I can't The visionary me. director of Love Wanted. Me, love me some Timmer. <laughs> and produced by Tim Burton, who hey, there's the segue. Let's talk about that great Dark Shadows trailer. I had a request, Barry. Hmm. It was if you hadn't seen the trailer, Billy Flynn had asked me because he called me Friday and he's like, "Have you seen the trailer? No, pull it up right now and watch it." Huh. And the commentary that I gave him, while just the "huh," like my 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 sounds of disgust in general, he wanted to have that live on the air. But since you've already seen it, we can't do that. I had a similar experience with my brother Martin. Um, <laughs> Martin now. Yeah. Uh, I, well, and I'll say this because I know there's been a lot of a lot of dislike for Burton on this show, and and I don't. You wankers can think of whatever you want. I think Burton is a genius, but uh, Marty, for me, it's more—it's not my taste. So all yeah, right. Well, yeah. my brother Martin, you know, Marty and I—I I mean, we grew up watching Burton stuff. We saw Pee Wee's Big Adventure and the Screen. I mean, we love Burton stuff, and we're both excited for for Frank and Weenie. But Marty did call me up and ask me to watch the trailer on the phone because he wanted to hear what I had to say about it because he knew I hadn't seen it yet. <laughs> so you gave you so you and, had to come in. Yeah, you know, I gotta say, like it was it was a really uh, I mean, in addition to the outrage and the way everyone else is thinking, I mean, it was a very disconcerting experience because the first forty seconds of the trailer, I'm going, okay, this is this yes. is this is what I expected. This is what I wanted. This is the show, and then the music changes. And it keeps changing. Very white. Yeah, very white, and it's just like all this, all this '70s pop music, and the jokes like real, like kind of crocodile Dundee kind of, you know, fish out of water jokes, and and it's strange because the music is like peppy and upbeat, but then the the uh, visuals keep getting more gothic and weird. This isn't like that brilliant Charlie and the Chocolate Factory tease that he put out, where it was so so abrasive and so weird that people didn't know what to expect. This is like mm-hmm. it feels like the trailer is totally out of whack with the movie, or that the movie itself is so totally out of whack. Um, but yeah, I was really disappointed because uh, I'm a big Dark Shadows fan, and no, no, this is the, the trailer does not represent what that show is like in any of its incarnations. Uh, the show is very serious. It is very gothic. It is very strange. In addition to vampires, there's werewolves and time travel and and uh, and the Necronomicon and all that stuff. Um, there's no jokes about you know the little people living in the TV set and you know. It, yeah, yeah. It, it looks like they're kind of like he's trying to do to this what he did to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, kind of make it very jokey and accessible for a broad audience, which he doesn't need to because there's already an audience for this, which is the same thing, the same problem with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It didn't need all that additional stuff. Ethan, so. I'll, I'll let you try mine on this before I, I take my shot at it. <laughs> I actually like the idea of Tim Burton doing like another Beetlejuice kind of movie, though. Yes. Yeah. I'm not, like, I don't think the trailer itself looks that good, but I'm definitely interested in the movie. Yeah. I think he, my first thought was, didn't, did he just really want to make the Adams Family movie or another Beetlejuice movie? Because this is very Beetlejuice-esque, I guess you can make the argument. My thought is, 
this movie needs to be retitled to Dark Shadows movie because it looks like Seltzer and Freebird got their hands on it. That's mm. how bad this looks to me. And I don't, I don't care who the director bad. is. No, no, no. It, oh. I wish, what I was really hoping though, would is it would be like the TV show because I'm not a fan. I really wasn't a fan of Sleepy Hollow, but I like that Burton finally made a horror movie because it feels mm-hmm. like every other movie he makes, he's really trying to make a horror film. This, you know, this is great material. Dark Shadows, even in its campiness and datedness, it's really, really creepy. So I was really hoping they would go all out and try to make a genuine vampire horror movie that wasn't wink wink and didn't have shirtless vampires and werewolves. So the fact that it's, it, that it is such an audience-friendly, audience-accessible summer movie is, is uh, you know, even without seeing the movie, it's, it's disappointing that they decided to go something that's that feels very safe and kind of what you'd expect from Tim Burton as opposed to something that's, you know, if, a little more bold. It feels like he's going for the ironic goth hipster people who shop at Hot Topic. That's what the movie feels like. Hmm. And Well, it, there's an audience for that. I don't know if that, that exact demographic actually even exists, but that's what it feels like. <laughs> oh, it exists, all right. You know, they go see Twilight movies. We know that exists. Yeah, and that's the same audience that made Alice in Wonderland such a huge hit, too, which I know you liked more than I did, but I, I still thought that was... Yeah, I still don't own it. How low There's do no you way go? put money on it. Yeah. yeah. I, oh, so bad. Yeah. All right, I guess we should take a break so we can recover from the, from, from the depression, if you will. So, um, yeah, we'll take a quick break. Be right back. We'll talk about some, some fun stuff. Uh, <laughs> movies that people, that critics hate, but we like. We'll be right back. And we're back. We want to talk today about films that we think that critics need to reconsider. Movies that have been uh, either completely bashed or underrated, underlooked, or just all out underappreciated and we think deserve a second shot. Fair enough. All right. We'll just take rotating turns because if all of us go through each of our lists all the way through, then. Yeah, yeah. no, we don't want to do that. Yeah. Ethan, since this was kind of your idea, why don't you kick us off with one? Okay. Two words Cable Guy. <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> Figured that one was coming. Yeah. I'm, Good choice. Good choice. I need Honestly, to I, I, putting aside, like, I think The Cable Guy is an interesting movie in a lot of levels, but even just putting aside, like, readings of the movie. I think it is Jim Carrey's, like, genuinely, it is his funniest movie. Hmm. Interesting. Like, uh, there's, to me, there's just so many classic scenes in that movie, like, uh, the medieval times scene, the porn password scene, the basketball scene. Like, I, I, because I, I revisited it last year, and I was laughing th- consistently throughout the whole movie. Seems like time has really caught up with it because a lot of those scenes you just mentioned made people very uncomfortable in 1996. <laughs> but it seems like uh, just how, wh- wh- I mean, it's it's got a real mean streak to it, and I, I like that about it. And I've always liked mm-hmm. that about it. And I think that was one of the problems when it came out. The studio was kind of trying to soft pedal that, and you know, the fact that it was the darker Jim Carrey movie, you know, coming after. I mean, he'd never done anything like this before. So coming after the Ace Ventura films and The Mask and Dumb and Dumber, it was such a shock to the system to see him play a character that really wasn't, you weren't, even though I like Chip, we, were, we weren't supposed to like Chip, the cable guy. I mean, he really is a psychopath. He's a really I think, yeah, he's puppy. genuinely scary. Yeah, like, he really is. that scene where uh, the dream sequence. Yeah, very, where very he charges it. That is actually, like, I think a genuinely scary scene. It is. It is. It's scary for the way he shot it. It's, it's got this, like, goofy, cartoonish music over it, but it really... It really doesn't make it any less creepy the way he's chasing uh, Matthew Broderick like a gargoyle. And and Broderick is terrific in this movie. I mean, and it's the most thankless role, but I think he did a really good job of, of you know, of finding that balance and not just not trying to ham it up or even keep up with, with Carrie, but just, you know, just being, it's a great reactionary role. 
the part in the movie that always creeped me out is the morning after the party where they're just having that that casual conversation over scrambled eggs and he admits that you know that that woman you were with last night was a prostitute that scene to me is always <laughs> like wow that's that is such an invasion uh, speaking of that party see jim carrey singing uh someone to love <laughs> i need to revisit this is it on netflix i don't know i should check i don't know i saw it uh yeah i saw it a couple years ago likewise just like ethan and and yeah, because when I first saw it, I I really really liked it, and it was one of these movies that was really hard to defend when it came out because everyone's like, oh, it's it's really sick and it's mean spirited and all this stuff. Which is all the reasons that you loved it. Yeah, oh, yeah, really, it was because I I was I love Dumb and Dumber, but I was really I didn't want to see another fifteen Dumb and Dumbers. And every time Carrie puts out a movie like Yes Man or Fumma Dick and Jane, I really wish he would do something like The Cable Guy, which is which was really bold. It was different, and Chip is a great character, and he's great in this movie. Well, I'll, I'll end my anecdote. I'm sorry to just steal this from you, Ethan. My favorite anecdote about about the cable guy, not an anecdote, my favorite moment in the movie is where, uh, where Matthew Broderick goes, so, you know, you got a lisping problem. You know, I have a friend who's a speech therapist, and Jim Carrey goes, so? <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. I, I guess I'll kick one off next just to, 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 to mix things up. I'm actually going the Disney route. Um, a film that uh, like likewise went very dark places. Pete's Dragon is not one that's ever been really loved by a lot of people. Good choice, Dave. Yeah, and I think a lot of it's because it doesn't fit the general Disney mold. Because the film really goes some incredibly dark places. I mean, it, it's it, it's about two steps away from showing child abuse on screen at some spots. Hmm. About this kid who just has nothing in his life, and I mean, it's take take the magical farcical parts of of the dragon away, and that's a depressing movie. Hmm. And I, I really admire the film for, for taking that, for, for going there and, and taking that risk. And I think it actually does pay off, even though it's not something that makes people very comfortable to watch, I think. It is a little Dickensian. I hadn't thought of that until just now. It's, it's, it, it, yeah, it's, I love the fact that it gets so dark. Yeah. But, yet it's, but yet it still finds a way to... It's still about an invisible dragon. But yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> but it no, is. you're right. It is a little tough in places. So yeah, that, that's my first one I'll just throw out there. Good choice. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that one I was going to do. I might do the one we were talking about, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. Okay. <laughs> uh, what about you, sir? I want to talk about, briefly, uh, William Peter Blatty's The Ninth Configuration. This is the, the directorial debut of William Peter Blatty, the author of The Exorcist. He wrote and directed uh, this film called The Ninth Configuration. It stars uh, Jason Miller, of course, who was the priest in The Exorcist, as well as Ed Flanders and a few other uh, really, really noteworthy character actors. Uh, and Stacy Keach, of course, is the lead in the film. The movie is about an asylum for uh, military, for anybody who was an astronaut or served in the war. And it's, a, and it's a, an asylum that's run by this character named Kane, played by Stacy Keach. And... He has a secret. Everybody there has a secret. You're not sure exactly what it is. This is a film that mixes. It feels like a fairy tale initially. It's a. Uh, it's a pretty rich black comedy. It has one of the most violent and certainly one of the most noteworthy bar fight scenes. It's. It's. There's never been anything quite like it. I hate the fact that Shutter Island stole so much from this movie and no one called it on it. Because um, Shutter Island, as it, both the Dennis Lehane novel and the movie, owes a lot to the Ninth Configuration, which I think is a superior and gutsier film. Um, yeah, it was dismissed, pretty much dismissed when it came out because it's not a horror film, and you can't, you know, you can't say, you know, from the from the writer director of The Exorcist and not be a horror film. Well, it wasn't a horror film, and people don't still don't know what to think about it. The DVD is very hard to find, but if you could, it's one of these movies I keep hoping that Criterion will release one day. Anyway, Ninth Configuration, it's a brilliant film. Cool, right on. Ethan, what you got next? Um, this is a film again. I, I'd mentioned, I think, a few weeks back that Rob Zombie was a filmmaker I'd really come around on. Hmm. 
And uh, I, I think Halloween 2 is his best film. Because uh, I, I think it's an underappreciated film because what I, I really react to it is how seriously Rob Zombie actually takes his themes, how seriously he takes his imagery. And I, I think it's, it's really, truly unique to the slasher genre. Uh, specifically, there's a scene where... Uh, Brad Dourif's character like reacts to his his daughter being killed, which I think is actually a, a completely devastating scene. Yeah, I think Zombie does interesting things in terms of uh, the theme of family. I guess some of the symbolism with the white horse is a little obvious, but I still find it very interesting. And yeah, I think Rob Zombie is one of the best horror filmmakers working today. I completely agree with you on this one, Ethan. I, I and I agree. I think it is his best film. Uh, I think it shows such a leaps and bounds over his first film, House of a Thousand Corpses. There are so many, you just really see his growth as a director in this film. There is a really beautiful helicopter shot, a wide shot of Michael Myers walking across this vast field. Um, I found all of the white horse scenes to be very reminiscent of David Lynch. The closing shot of the movie, which I won't reveal or anything, but the way the camera closes in on that one character, I was terrified. I sat in my seat with my hands over my eyes. I could barely look at it. I was so, so uneased with this film. Um, I think it has some of the problems as the other film does, but what I love about this movie is that unlike the first one, this is truly a Rob Zombie film. He's not redoing John Carpenter. It really does take the character in some really different directions, really unsettling and disturbing things. Some of the Rob Zombie stuff you'd expect, like, of course, there's, you know, inevitably there's a stripper scene. There's a scene that takes place in a stripper hall. Surprise, surprise, you know, it's Rob Zombie. But no, I I totally agree with you, and I think the film is underrated. The performances are terrific, just like, just as in the the first Halloween remake, everybody is terrific in this movie. Weird Al Al Yankovic has a cameo, by the way. I've heard about that. Yeah, yeah, he's plays himself in the film. Now, I really, I really admired this film, and I was kind of a kind of like Ethan. I was kind of surprised that it just kind of got dismissed so heavily because because you're right, Ethan. But the, this is a really well crafted horror film. Okay, so as someone who hated the first film so vehemently like I do, is it something I should actually check out? Uh, I, I would recommend it just because for the first, what would you say, Ethan? Like for the first ten minutes, it's exactly what you think it would be, and then it turns into something completely different. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I find with Rob Zombie that he always, because I guess he has two sets of movies, each one's the original, each one's the sequel, that with the original, he's sort of always, he's struggling with what he wants to do, but by the sequel, he knows exactly what he wants, and he nails it. Yeah. Hmm, okay. Yeah, because it opens up as a you know quasi remake of Halloween two, the original Halloween two, with you know with uh, Laurie Strode being chased through the hospital. But then everything changes, and it just it becomes character driven. And even though the language is as coarse as you'd expect, and the violence is always so impactful in every way, you really feel every knife blow. Uh, yeah, this one really, I really found it really captivating and really frightening. Interesting. Okay, yeah. I might I might have to check it out. See if I can seek it out and find it. I guess I'm next. I'm going to go a little Joe Dante on us here because a lot of his films have a certain, are, are definitely appreciated. But I think one that's been underappreciated is definitely Joe versus the Volcano. I think in a, in a lot of ways, it's it was ahead of its time. It's John Patrick Shanley, but yes. Oh, it was? I thought that's Dante okay. worked on that. That's okay. No, no, no. Yeah, no. My bad. No, Dante. That's okay. No, it's it's a, the dude who did Moonstruck. That's okay. Yeah, John Patrick Shanley. Okay. Oh, man. Right. Okay. Still, it's it's like one of the great Tom Hanks comedies as far as I'm concerned. I think it might have been a little too quirky for its time. Yeah. I think in the day and age of people with, with shows like Robot Chicken, like The Family Guy, like you know, so many of these different shows that just have so many non sequiturs and just, you know, it's in the service of the joke in a lot of ways. I think this film really, really shows how it can be done incredibly well. 
Uh, it's it's hilarious beyond words. I mean, Meg Ryan playing three different roles. It's my favorite of the Meg Ryan Tom Hanks movies. She's by a long great shot. in that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always think of uh, Ebert. Something that Ebert said I thought was pretty great. He says he knew he loved the movie because after five minutes he had no idea what the movie was. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and you got to admit, like it's a it really is a great screenplay because usually romantic comedies, it's like okay, boy meets girl, we kind of know what's going to happen in the last fifteen minutes. It opens up with Tom Hanks with long hair, wearing this goofy hat, working in a petroleum factory where the oh, where, the, the, where the lights well, it are was bad. a medical <laughs> factory because they had the fake balls and they had all kinds of. It's so bizarre, and he brings his little tiki Hawaiian dancer girl lamp uh, to his desk. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 uh, yeah, it's very unique. It's a film that a lot of people don't get. I mean, I, Steph doesn't like it. I, I I can't necessarily blame anyone, but I think it's a film that deserves another chance. This far removed from when it came out, yeah, I, I think I, I think it'd do very well in Arrivals. I don't know, just throwing it out there. No, I totally agree with you, Dave. I've always wanted to see the original ending, and maybe you've heard of this. It originally had a longer ending where after. I don't want to spoil it, but after the events of the island, uh, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks go back to the mainland, and they take uh, Robert Stack at gunpoint, and they okay. kind of they kind of get their comeuppance to Robert Stack, as opposed to the ending in the movie, which is kind of I don't want to say ambiguous, but they kind of literally leave the character stranded in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But I mean, the the concept of a brain cloud. Come on, how do you not like <laughs> the that? Brain cloud. <laughs> like it's just so so such foggy science. Pardon the pun there. That it's it's. I think it really has a chance to, to grab a new audience if people give it a shot. Well, you know, this is when Tank, when Hanks was just really rocking it with the comedies. Oh yeah, know? Man with One, one Red Shoe and well, I wouldn't go to that okay, one. Okay, but I'm, I'm just saying. I'm <laughs> just saying some of the films that were that were no, his hits. No, you're right. Yeah, yeah, Turner and Hooch, The Burbs, yes. uh, Dragnet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is when he was he, when he was primarily known for comedies. This is before Philadelphia, and you know when he started kind of. You know, I just watched Dragnet. I forgot to put that on my list because it popped up on Netflix. I love Dragnet. It's oh, one of my favorites. Ethan, have solo. you seen Joe vs. the Volcano? Me? Yeah. Uh, no, I'd like to actually. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We. I think it's well worth it. Yeah, I think definitely recommend it. it, it it's re- yeah. It's it's abstract enough i think that oh yeah did. yeah i'd say it's abstract yeah so yeah all right barry what you got next well um two two sequels uh to kind of a double feature here two sequels that i really do think are superior to the original and i and i get a lot of flack for this but what the heck um i want to mention john frankenheimer's the french connection 2 which i think is a much better film and even though it's not the classic that Roman Polanski's film is, uh, Jack Nicholson's The Two Jakes, which I think is a much more stylish and I think much more engrossing film and much more emotionally fulfilling movie than Chinatown. Um, both movies were completely dismissed. French Connection 2, primarily because it's such a dark film, unlike The French Connection, which is a, you know, a cop chase movie, one of the great films, or William Freakin. French Connection 2 has a section of the film, this is a minor spoiler if you're willing to see it, where Popeye Doyle, the, the cop character played by Gene Hackman, he's captured by the bad guys, they tie him to a bed, and they turn him into a heroin addict. So a good portion of the wow. movie is him trying to kick his heroin addiction. And you're really rooting for him because you love this guy. You love this character. So once he finally does come clean and goes after the bad guys, it it makes it that much sweeter. It's such a great victory. And the ending is so satisfying and so thrilling. This is a terrific movie. I wish more people would see it. With the two Jakes... Uh, when it came out in 1990, this thing was such a critic's pinata, and everybody was after Nicholson because he made a fortune for playing the Joker in Batman. It's the first thing he did after Batman. Uh, Nicholson also directed the two Jakes as well as stars in it. It really is a different movie about a character living in a different time. It doesn't feel like a sequel to Chinatown as much as what happened after Chinatown. It really feels like a very pessimistic and honest and very brooding and dark film about how this character is living life after World War II and how the events of the first film are still haunting him. I love the two Jakes. It's one of the most stylish 
films of its time. Uh, the, the not only the direction but the cinematography by Vilos Zygmunt is just really rich with a lot of, big, of really quirky and interesting choices. And I think Nicholson made really one of the best films in 1990. And, and nobody nobody bothers to look at it. But I really wish people would look at the two Jakes, especially if they're going to watch Chinatown for the first time. Fair enough. Cool. All right, Ethan, you're up. Whoa, me? Yes. Um, I will stand. I will. What's the term? Up to bad? Yes. Uh-huh. For uh, Jim Jarmusch's The Limits of Control, his last film. Thank you. Which was completely uh, torn apart by critics. Yes, it was. Calling it uh, too slow, too abstract, various uh, banal criticisms. I think this movie is a victim of the fact that it is a genuine American art film that is being released somewhat of a mainstream release at least and um i I just i do think critics just did not get it it's like it's not criticizing it for being too slow or too abstract is not actually criticizing the movie like i remember uh jonathan rosenbaum was one of my favorite critics though he wrote a piece defending the movie and he said how he cited todd mccarthy from variety how he said it's like there may be uh, limits of there's, but there's like a limit to how much self-indulgence a filmmaker can do. And Rosenbaum said, but why should there be a limit to self-indulgence? Why should filmmakers rein themselves in to be more mainstream? And I think this film is, it says a lot about kind of American life, European life, the role of art in our lives. And I and I think it, it even just on a kind of superficial level, it looks beautiful, great cast. I, I think it's a great film. I completely agree with you, Ethan. Totally agree with you. I really feel like everybody missed the boat on this one. It reminded me of uh, Vim Vender's Road film, just the way it is such a journey. And I liked the slow pace myself because I really felt like I was on the journey with this character. And, you know, things don't happen quickly all at once. Um, but I thought the journey really did have a trajectory. And I loved all the people that he encountered along the way, whether it being Tilda Swinton or John Hurt. Uh, I really liked the scene with Bill Murray at the end. I thought it, it had a real, real punch to it. Um, I loved this main character. I loved his code and like his 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 ethics and the way he lived his life. And no, I really, I, I totally agree with you. I think everybody missed the boat on this. This was a movie that Marty saw, and he really hated. And he called me up. He's like, "Don't even see it, Barry. Don't. Even. It's not even worth it. Not even for Bill Murray. Don't see it." And I and I'm like, oh, "All right. Well, well, I saw it like a t- year or two later after it came out. I'm like, wow. I think." As much as I really respect my brother's opinion, I think he's wrong about this one. I think it's a terrific film too. Let me throw a question out there about film criticism. Now, we all know it's a subjective medium, but do you think that we need to have a certain amount of internal consistency? I totally see what Ethan's saying. You know, people are like, well, it's too slow, it's too blah, 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 yet we embrace it when Terrence Malick does it in The Tree of Life. Is it fair to say the slow pace didn't work for me as opposed to saying, oh, that slow pace, I can't stand that slow pace stuff because then it, you, tr- you open yourself up to saying, well, then how, do, how come you like the slow pace in this one? Well, yeah, fair. That's like a pretty general statement. I think more just... People criticize it for being slow and kind of in terms of linking it to how abstract it is overall. Okay. Because it's a common common criticism I see in a lot of films. Oh, it's too slow. It's too slow. Whereas there are some films that that slowness is the exact reason why they love another film. And, And... I don't know. I'm just throwing it no, out No, no, no. It's a good question, Dave. I mean, my, my response to that, because uh, I've run into this a lot too, everybody has such a different uh, definition of what boring is. Mm-hmm. And I hate that word with all my heart. I hate it when my students say it. I hate it when critics say it. Because I, I think that term says more about the person than it does about the movie. Because, you know, I don't find 
Terrence Malick movies boring. I find Michael Bay movies incredibly boring. I don't like watching things when nothing is at stake and nothing is happening. Um, but I, I find whenever a director is taking the time to really establish mood and pace and tone, if there's a point to it, I think that's really thrilling. Um, but I think movies can be overly pretentious. But like Ethan, I like movies when they are pretentious. So for me, it's like mm-hmm. it really is a film-by-film basis. Exactly. But when it comes to this filmmaker in particular, Jim Jarmusch, I mean, yeah, I think either you groove to his music or not. I mean, it, it really is like cinematic jazz with this guy. You really, you know, there's really no never knowing what's going to come around the corner with this guy. I mean, this is a guy who casts Forrest Whitaker as a samurai, for Pete's sake. You never know what this guy is going to do. But his films are typically very leisurely paced. And either this is a really hip kind of music that you listen to to and you groove to and you love or you don't but i think with jarmish it's consistent this guy makes films that uh kind of move to the rhythm of life as opposed to the rhythm of some contrived screenplay fair enough okay i'm going to bring up one that's just ever so brief i've talked about talked it to death to death but i do think joseph and pussycats deserves to be here <laughs> oh, no. I, i'm not going to go into long t- i know you're not there i know you're not no, there with I'm me i know i still think it's it's a great critique about the pop music scene and the consumerism of the time I think it's a great example. I still love the film un- without any kind of pretentious, oh, it's a guilty pleasure kind of thing. Um, no, you think just it's a genuinely great film. I think it is a genuinely good film. I think it genuinely has something to say. Um, I, I totally understand if you don't like it. That's that's cool. Um, <laughs> I don't. You're right, Dave. Yes. I don't like this movie at all. I'm, I, I can understand that. It's all good. Um, one, I, I can't believe I'm turning around on this. I, I'm just going to say it. Batman Forever. I've turned around on some wow. um, because I think a lot of it has to do with with people's expectations for this film. Where yes, I'm actually defending a freaking Schumacher film. Oh well, um, people's expectations after the Burton films were set at a, for a very certain tone and a very certain style. That's not the tone and style that Schumacher grew up with for Batman. This right. was, this was him doing an homage and a throwback to the '60s show. Yes. Down to, to I th- the, the second the last time I saw this film, I really appreciated Carrie's performance a heck of a lot more because he's really doing a Frank Gorshin yeah. all the way through. And on that level, as that kind of a film, I think it works quite well. I think Tommy Lee Jones' Two-Face is really kind of half-assed. <laughs> yes. There's, there's, I'm not even going to pretend that that was good, but I think the rest of the film actually works a lot better than I gave it credit for initially. Um, I'm not all the way around on it, but I'm definitely give it. You know, it's, it's definitely not as bad as like Batman and Robin. Batman no, and Robin's no, just an no. atrocity all the way across the board. But I think if you go into Batman Forever looking at it with the right context and understand what you're seeing, you're not looking at a Burtman film. You're looking at a throwback to the 60s show that doesn't even quite go all the way as campy as the 60s show. It still takes itself somewhat seriously. I think it works. I agree with you, Dave. I think it totally works. Um, yeah, I mean, some some choices were a little little much. But, uh, yeah, I think it embraces camp, but also it, it, it tells a really engaging story. And I think the that whole uh, enigma thing, um, I think it really worked well with, with uh, what they did with the Jim Carrey character. I don't think they really needed uh, Tommy Lee Jones's no, no. participation in this movie. And they really didn't even need Nicole it, Kidman's, unfortunately. I mean, no. she's really kind of wasted in this film. But I thought, for what it's worth, I thought Chris O'Donnell was really engaging as Robin. And there's that fight scene, that really weird fight scene with that weird lighting I thought was kind of cool mm-hmm. between him and a bunch of hoods. Um, yeah, no, I think, on one hand, this is a movie that Warner Brothers wanted so badly because nobody liked Batman Returns for the most part. It was so bashed, and, you know, every audience was like, it's too dark, it's too dark. So they went, so Warner Brothers went the total opposite, and, you know, and it became a toy bonanza. And, mm-hmm. and you know, unfortunately, Batman and Robin was like, well, let's lighten it up even more to the point where it was like a, you know, like a black light in a college dorm. I need to visit just, that. I need to listen to that commentary soon, the Batman and Robin commentary. 
Oh, you haven't listened to it? I have not yet. It's good because Schumacher is very open about it. Um, and he knows the film doesn't work and he's really open about it. And talking about how, you know, when movies are designed for children and toy companies and not in in a character That's sense. what you get. I love Schumacher as a director. I've always loved, you know, uh, The Lost Boys, Time to Kill and Falling Down. Um, you know, I, I totally forgive him for what he did to Batman because for me, it makes sense. And people liked the lighter Batman for a while and thankfully they didn't and it, and it went away and we kind of restarted. Because, I mean, if, you know, if Batman or Robin was a huge, huge, huge hit, we'd still, you know, Batman would be like the spirit by now. You yeah. know, it would be totally yeah. campy. Well, so, then we wouldn't have had Batman animated series in the same way we wouldn't have had, I mean, we would have had an entirely different trajectory for yeah. the for the for the for, for the comics franchises of Warner Brothers slash DC. Yeah, and, and you know, comic fans, because I and I have a lot of Batman comics, so I can vouch for this. It's not just the TV show. The Schumacher's movies reflected the way the series was for a while. In mm-hmm. the nineteen sixties, not oh, not yeah. only because of the TV show, but the sixties and, and even uh, some of the seventies issues of Batman before the Frank Miller age were very campy and very silly and very goofy. You know, it, it's only, you know, kind of the late twentieth century where Batman became very existential and very dark and reflection of Reagan's America and Margaret Thatcher and all that stuff yeah so. okay all right wow who knew we were gonna get a deep discussion of batman forever well you know no that, that's a that was a bold pick i didn't think you'd i didn't think you'd ever uh, uh i know i never stick up for batman neither did forever. i neither did i <laughs> yeah yeah so all right what, what you got next barry well, let's see. Um, I try to do mine a little older, uh, just because this is a—it's a great question. You know, what what do we think? You know, needs some revisiting or whatever. Um, I'll stand up again for uh, Walter Murch's Return to Oz, which was certainly bashed, oh, yeah. bashed when it came out in 1985. And now, with all these fantasy movies in which the lead character is a child in terrible and in, in in fact, in some cases, terrifying danger, and you have films like Pan's Labyrinth and The Golden Compass, movies that have real edge and and real danger to them, and real suspense and real ambition. Uh, Return to Oz was frankly just way ahead of its time. Everybody was expecting the Judy Garland film, which it was certainly not. It was really reflective of the L. Frank Baum books. Uh, Return to Oz is very intense. It opens up in a really disturbing light, and it kind of proceeds from there. It has a really triumphant ending and a really happy ending, I must say, that makes the whole darkness of the journey worth it. But still, it was too much for people in 1985. And now, I really think it's one of the great fantasy films. I would put it up there with the best fantasy films. No, it's not the equal of, of The Wizard of Oz. It's a completely different film. But it I, is. I, I would put it up there with Pan's Labyrinth. I think it's that kind of a film. The smaller, more intimate feel, which is a result of the lower budget, I think really helped the, the mood of the film overall. Oh, yeah. yeah. Although, for its time, for its time, it oh, was yeah. pricey. But, you know, now it it's... It was. But, yeah. I mean, but, I mean, the way that it looked, the way that they shot it, it was a lot more intimate. It didn't feel quite so grand in scope as the original film. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, plus you have Emerald City, like, crumbling, you know? I mean, yeah. The, the, the yellow brick road is, is like a pile of yellow bricks, and the Emerald City looks like, you know, like a, like a crack den. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. All right, Ethan, what you got next? Uh, my pick is from Neville Dean Taylor, Gamer from 2009, oh boy. which uh, I think it, I think people can very easily dismiss this movie as just a stupid action movie, but I think that Neville Dean Taylor are formally incredibly inventive and strange and funny directors. I think that often most of their choices actually reflect kind of uh, the stupidity of modern cyberspace. Because I was thinking about this when we were talking about Neuromancer in a sci-fi class. How, if you had, if you visual, if you visualize cyberspace, what cyberspace consists of mostly is like stupid YouTube videos, uh, chat roulette, and all this stuff. And I think this movie is an interesting actual commentary on that. I know it's hard to it's weird to say that about a movie like this, but I really like Gamer a lot.
<laughs> I haven't seen it, and Barry's just I've shaking seen, his I've head. I've seen Gamer. I saw it because Lloyd Kaufman is in it, honestly. Uh, he told me that he did this one-day cameo in it, and it goes by so quickly. I don't know if you spotted it, Ethan, where Lloyd Kaufman is the guy who's banging his head against a fence until it's bloody. It's like a, a split-second shot, and Gerard Butler sees him for a second. Um, some really interesting ideas in Gamer, uh, but yeah, unfortunately, I have to, I guess, be a snob about it. I really didn't like this film. I... Uh, I found it too derivative of movies like The Fifth Element and Blade Runner and Tron. And um, I thought visually it was really the scenes of, of Gerard Butler in play, I thought were really engaging the way they were shot and the way he's communicating with the young man. Um, but I found a real contempt for its audience as well as a contempt for this sort of lifestyle that we have, this whole thing of living vicariously through our avatars. Um, it's one thing that the young man playing the Gerard Butler character is such a prick if i could use that word but um the scenes of the naked obese guy covered in butter uh for one thing you can already hear for one thing it felt like a precursor for human centipede 2 the other thing is that it just yeah again it like it felt like as opposed to really exploring this issue it felt like a real up yours and i was um Oh, what's her name? Um, the amazing actress. That's Joan Allen. I was really horrified to see Joan Allen in this movie. Yeah. Joan, Joan Allen is not in Gamer. Who is who is the great actress who's in it? Who plays the the main? It's not Frances McDormand, is it? Who is it? There's a really great actress in this movie, and she has one of the lead roles. Allison Lohman's in it. No, 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 no. Um, Are you thinking of Death Race? No, 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 no. no. There's a really oh, great... Kira Sedgwick. Thank you, Kira Sedgwick. Yes, Kira Sedgwick is a great actress, and yeah. And she's in Gamer. I, I, I don't deny that Neville Dean Taylor have style. They have panache. I mean, it's very in your face. No question. It's like cinematic Red Bull. But it, it certainly works. And I, I think it worked for this movie too. But I just for the screenplay, I just felt a real contempt for everybody on both sides of the camera, which is why I did not like the film. And okay. why I did. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting to the part where I was hoping we get. We're going to have some pretty significant differences of opinion. I think that that's inevitable with us three, but yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Um, oh man, which one do I go, want to go with next? I man, you know, I'm going to go with a with a William Castle flick since we're go a little old school. Yeah. Um, it's not that this movie isn't beloved by people. I think it's beloved by people for being a guilty pleasure as opposed to being a solid movie. And I'm thinking of House of Wax. Um, have when, the second I know it always by reputation more than actually seeing the film. And I'm like, oh, look, it has, you know, Lily Munster in it. Or, or was it Lady from the, the Addams Family or whichever? I think it was it uh, Barbara Steele, I think, in House of Wax? Or? No, 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 no. You're talking about the Vincent Price film, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, hang on. Let, let me look it up. Are you thinking of Yvonne DiCarlo from yes. the Addams Family? Yes. Okay, it was Addams Family. Yes. Oh, okay. Cool. I hadn't seen House of Wax in some time. I know Charles Bronson's in it. Yes, that, which was quite interesting to see. And it's easy to write off as just a guilty pleasure in a fun film because... It, it's got, you know, the guy with the yo-yos throwing the yo-yos at the, the screen. first 3D movie. Yeah, Damn. specifically, you know, really throwing that stuff out there. Um, I, okay, I'm bringing up the cast because now I want to see who's in this thing. I'd make sure, I th- I'm pretty sure it was a Von DiCarlo. Carolyn Jones, no. Yeah, Carolyn Jones from the Addams Family. Okay, so, Addams Family. Yeah, Von DiCarlo was the Munsters. Yes, that's right. She so, was I Mrs. Munster. Yeah, you have all the makings for just a cheesy flick. But I think it, it, Vincent Price is such an underrated actor. The man, yes, he, was, he had the creepy stuff and all that stuff going on, but he could really bring angst and, you know, not not an emo angsty thing, but truly a tortured soul to the screen, which I think he did beautifully in this film. 
Like yeah. you understand why he did what he did. And his look was predating Freddy Krueger by forty years. Oh yeah, the, I mean the the hat and the burn up face. I mean that's that's Freddy right there. Exactly. I think it's an outstanding film. It is. Yeah. Not to be confused with the remake House no, of not, Wax. Not, not, we're talking about the original, original House of Wax. Not the one where, where the big highlight is that Paris Hilton gets killed. No, that she no, melts. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. So I, I, I just, you know, it's, it's a chance to give some love to a movie that I think really deserves it. Yeah. So, all right. I'm going for all these weird B movies and stuff. Ethan, no, what you got next? Good stuff. Uh, all the fi- uh, film I saw recently um, from one of my favorite filmmakers uh, Claire Denis Trouble Every Day. Now, I'll give some uh, background on this film that uh, Claire Denis had just come off Beau Travail, which was one of the most acclaimed films of its year. She had a lot of offers to do films, but uh, there's been kind of this movement in French cinema, the kind of the extremity wave of like filmmakers like Bruno Dumont, Gaspar Noé, uh, Catherine Briat. Philippe Grandio and uh, the producer a lot of these films are made by the same producers so they made an offer to her saying we want you to do a horror film so she was like okay you know what I'll uh, give this a shot and uh, she made a film about what personally scares her and uh, the film is about uh, Vincent Gallo and his his wife they're this American couple and they're honeymooning in Paris and he's a doctor and it also cuts to uh, these people who work with this doctor who's trying to can keep kind of contain this uh, virus that his wife has that basically makes you cannibalistic and uh, the film has two sequences in particular that are extremely brutal and violent and uh, critics really reacted negatively to this film but I think that the movie is a very it's very intellectual and about the theme of love and what you do for your partner and uh i, I it's kind of gotten a bit reconsidered over the years but i think it's a, a really incredible film hmm. trouble every day yeah i have not seen that one interesting um man i'm trying to, i'm kind of hitting the bot the end of my list like it's all like do i really want to mention this movie do it <sighs> what do you got remember you 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 asked for it sir <laughs> I'm going to. I have to throw it out there because I think the movie is unappreciated as a true comedy, and that is the Marine. I'm mm. going to throw it out there. The Marine. Just because having revisited the film, it's easy just to write it off as one of those movies that's so bad it's good. But the more I see it, the more I watch the performances. Yes, I'm talking about the performances in a WWE wrestling John movie. John Cena. Not of John Cena, of Robert Patrick Robert and Patrick. every other person who's Patrick in this is film. Awesome in this movie. Yes, he is. I'm firmly of the of, of the opinion that everyone else in this film is in on the joke except for Cena. <laughs> That's great, dude. It's and I'm not. And here's the thing. And if he is in on the joke, he's even more. He's like the most brilliant actor of all time because he plays it. That film only works if he plays it straight. If yeah. he acts like he's in, on, he's in on the joke too, it becomes your cra- generic crap, you run-of-the-mill action yeah. movie. That's a great point. The yeah. fact that yeah. he plays it so earnestly makes the movie magic. Yeah. And it is, I know it's, it's, it is an action film, and it, I'm sure it's unintentionally a comedy, but it's, it, it, it plays like a legitimate comedy as far as I'm concerned. But it's such a, you know, to use this term, it's such a balls-out action movie. I mean, for me, it really is kind of what The Expendables is trying to do. And I think The Expendables works, but I mean, I think The Marine just does it. This is an 80s action movie you would see at Cinemax at 11 o'clock at night, you know, in between showings of Chuck Norris and Bronson movies. You know, I mean, this is, this is like, 
this is a dude movie, and it, it, it completely lives it and owns up to it. I mean, this is a scene where, where Cena jumps out of a car that is flying through the air, being shot with bullet holes by another car <laughs> that's driving next to it over a cliff. I mean, this movie is nuts. It is nuts. <laughs> I mean, I think it really genuinely is the precursor to what Fast Five was. Yes, yes. Where it's just, it's so insane you can't help but leave the movie with a smile on your face. I know that really they were trying to make a legitimate action movie, but it's just so insane. It's leg- I, I, it legitimately works. It's very, very entertaining. It's hard to uh, even even like the the last time I watched it, I kind of like you, Dave. I mean, I have a hard time even being like, well, it's a guilty pleasure. No, this movie is funny as heck. It's so entertaining, never a dull moment. I mean, for me, like, you know, I mean, we talked about Neville Dean Taylor a minute ago. I mean, to me, this is like a Neville Dean Taylor sort of film. You know, I mean, it's just so, it wants to entertain you so bad, and it does it just because it's just trying to be the best B movie it could be. And I know that, that they made a sequel and all that stuff. I just refuse to watch it because that movie is truly lightning in a bottle. There's no way you can make that movie again until you get to Fast Five. <laughs> Only Cena could play the Marine. There is yes. no other actor who yes. play that role. So, okay, I've got one more to list up, so let's let's wrap it up here with a couple more each if you want to. Uh, Barry, what you got next? Uh, some quick double features, uh, animated films. Uh, two films that were completely dismissed by critics, one being Will Vinton's The Adventures of Mark Twain. Will Vinton is the animator uh, who invented Claymation. He did all the animated sequences in uh, Return of Oz as well as the California Raisins. I'm sure you remember the California Raisins. He did an entirely Claymation movie called The Adventures of Mark Twain and incorporates all of Mark Twain's stories with this really crazy, weird sci-fi story as well as the creation of the universe. No, it's not the tree of life, but this is a really (laughs) brilliant movie. People need to find it. The DVD is very difficult to find. It came out in 1985. Nobody saw this thing, but it is entirely all the sets, all the actors, everything is Claymation. And it's beautiful and weird and funny and brilliant. And it's the only film of its kind that exists. The other movie I want to throw out that's animated that got completely dismissed by critics. So like, I don't get it, which is something that drives me nuts. You don't need to get it. Just experience it. That would be Richard Linklater's Scanner Darkly. Mm-hmm. Scanner Darkly takes the graphic novel idea further. This isn't uh, like 300 or, or Sin City where it's a recreation of a graphic novel. No, no, no. This is a moving, living, breathing graphic novel. These are all artists who created one singular vision. This isn't like Waking Life, another brilliant movie that Linklater did, but this isn't like Waking Life where every scene has a different style, a different animator. This is all the same artists working on all the same characters, creating a really, you know, creating the synchronicity of vision, uh, bringing Richard Linklater's story to life, making these characters real. I thought Scanner Darkly was the best film of its year, 2006, the same year as The Marine. Damn good year for film, I must say. Uh, but yeah, please check out a Scanner Darkly if you're into animation and animated films. It is, I think, the new frontier of great animated films. Um, and I certainly think it belongs along that slot of films like, you know, Tangled and, and Wally in terms of just the great animation that we've seen in, in post 21st century. Cool. I'll just throw my last one out. I'm going to let Ethan kind of take it away to end it since this was his brilliant idea for a topic that I think was a lot of fun to do. Um, I'm going to throw out there Alien 3. Uh, just because it's it's another one of these films that it's it doesn't match the tone of the other of the previous two films, and I think that's a lot of what played against it. Um, I know Fincher is famously you know saying f the Hollywood system after working on that movie and all the all, all the uh, the the meddling I guess we'll say of the studio. Yeah, but I think the film works as a very interesting take on the Alien universe. I mean, it's it's another side of that universe that you just don't see otherwise. And like the whole religious aspect and everything, I think worked quite well. I think a lot of people were just looking for something else, kind of like Batman Forever. Although yeah. I would say this is a better film than Batman Forever, probably. So yeah, I just wanted to throw it out there. It's it's a film that a lot of people will, will write off just based off of 
off its no- notorious, you know, <laughs> the way people talk about it, I think yeah. it's worth checking out for sure. I agree with you. I'm actually going to revisit it pretty soon. It's uh, It turns 20 in a couple months. Wow. Um, yeah. Now, yeah. you'll notice I did not bring up Alien Resurrection because that thing's crap. Sorry. I completely disagree with you. <laughs> I, it's fun, but it's, it's yeah, it's okay. But, yeah. but Whedon did it, Dave. Uh, yeah, there was like two lines in it from his script that actually made it into the actual movie. <laughs> He's been asked about it. Um, Ethan, take us home, sir. Give, give us some, some ones to end it on. Okay, I, this, is, this is pretty much, this movie's pretty much the reason for this episode. Uh-oh. Okay. This, I guess it, it doesn't, isn't quite count as much now, because this movie's seen a real kind of reevaluation over time, and a lot of, like, academics like it, so it's not quite as big of a deal. But, of course, I'd have to mention Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls, which I think is a masterpiece. Hmm. Okay. I, th- I don't like clearly critics at the time did not get the fact that this movie is like a satire, uh, a melodrama, all these things where they're just like, oh, it's like, uh, like they're making fun of all these lines which are clearly meant to be funny, or the tone which is clearly satirical. They didn't get any of the things it's targeting. I but over time people have reevaluated it, and I'm glad because I think it's an awesome movie. I still have not seen Showgirls. It's a tough one for me to talk about uh, in this context, only because on the one hand, I agree with Ethan. I think it's a tremendously entertaining film. Um, On the other hand, and you know this, Ethan, uh, to this day, to this day, Paul Verhoeven and screenwriter Joe Esterhaz insist they made a serious film. They insist that this movie is a serious drama about a young woman who compromises her ethics in the world of Vegas glitz. I mean, they insist that this movie was supposed to be a serious, serious film. Um, and it's not. And you look at the movie and go, where, where, where is that? Um, the problem I've always had with this movie, and, I, and a few other critics, like the one critic I thought who really got it was Mike Clark from USA Today. He gave it a kind of a kind of a cop out, two and a half stars. Um, but he, the thing that he said that uh, that I certainly agree with, I think the movie is a blast. Um, until there's this really ugly, nasty rape scene towards the end of the film, and then this kung fu revenge come up in sequence that <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. For me, the movie kind of stopped working at, at some point. Um, but no question. I mean, this movie was like, look, we have the NC-17. Look how much fun we're going to have within the confines of the NC-17. The movie is awesomely sleazy and visually gorgeous and is stylish and as unhinged and uncompromised as you'd expect from Paul Verhoeven. Uh, but yeah, my problem has always been, I just, I think the third act, I don't think the movie knew how quite how to quit, honestly, but between all the like paper mache volcanoes and uh, the infamous pool sequence and every time Elizabeth Berkley opens her gorgeous mouth uh, to, to, to give some of the worst dialogue in all of cinema, yeah, I, I'm with you, Ethan. I think this movie is tremendously entertaining. Did, do you have the same problem as me, though, about the ending, or not really? Uh, the first time I watched I remember thinking it, but I revisited it recently, and I realized, though, that Verhoeven, it's part of the point the movie's making about the... Because the idea is Vegas is essentially Hollywood, right? Yes, yes. And the idea that the, this woman is raped by this guy who she's lusting over during the whole movie. Yeah. So, again, it's just the, it's showing how ugly this system is. Again, like, the movie is satirical, but at the same time, it does take certain things seriously. And it is, a, you know, kind of almost a, a Douglas Sirkian melodrama. Yeah, yeah, and and Nomi does get her revenge. She does roundhouse kick that guy to the moon um, later in the film. (laughs) So there is justice in this film. 
Okay. And the definitive Gina Gershon performance, by the way. If, if anybody ever wondered, like, why is Gina Gershon famous? Well, it's because of her work in Showgirls. She is... Uh, she is like the wicked queen in a in a in a Cinderella movie. In this movie, she is uh, she personifies the bad girl. I really like Gina Gershon's performance in the movie. Fair enough. All right. Any other ones you wanted to bring up at all, Ethan? Nah, that's a good way to end it. I think. Okay, ending it on a on a proverbial high note, depending on your definition of it. Um, I'm curious to see what other people's ideas of films are. I, there are certain films I didn't bring up. Like I, th- I debated putting The Fountain on my list. But A, I've talked that movie to freaking death. But second of all, it's more a movie that's more polarizing than anything else. You know, it's, it's, it's split. Either you love it or you hate it for the most part. It's so a good it's, choice, though, because most critics did completely just dismissed it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we, we ran the freaking telethon for the, <laughs> for the film. We did. So, we did, yeah. So I'm, I'm good leaving that alone. So, yeah, shoot us an email. Let us know what you think. Podcast, Barry, Dave, Ethan, all at ScreenGeeks.com. Um, let's go ahead and talk about what's hitting theaters this week. Uh, one, whole, film, one movie one whole movie uh, Gary Ross's adaptation of The Hunger Games starring the lovely Jennifer Lawrence I'm psyched we get to see this tomorrow I'm psyched to see it but I don't know why anyone would be that scared of The Hunger Games That that's the only movie that's showing period like there's nothing else well they knew I mean this is you know it's the same thing when uh, you know Phantom Menace opened up same thing when Twilight New Moon opened up I mean these studios they know that you know, if, if there's a rival film out there, no one's going to see it, even if it's... I mean, did, I, did, no, most people don't even remember there was a sequel to Dirty Dancing, and the reason why it opened the same day as The Passion of the Christ, nobody went and saw Dirty Dancing 2. <laughs> no one was going to, but nobody especially went because of the competition. There was a movie that opened up the same day as The Phantom Menace called The Love Letter. Do you remember that with Kate Capshaw? Nobody saw it. Opened the same day as, as okay. Phantom Menace. You know, so I think I think studios know, like, when you're... This, is, this has, like, the hype and the anticipation of a summer movie. So, I mean, clearly... You know, it's like either this or the Lorax next weekend. So, okay, I, yeah. I guess, I guess. I, I, I'm a little surprised. I don't care. I'm psyched to see it. I did enjoy the books. Um, we'll see how that goes. I'm glad Isn't there like a ton of stuff coming out in limited release. Not that I saw on, on Box Office Mojo. Let me pull it up real quick and, and double check that. Uh, you know what? There is a crap load of stuff coming out. Like three screens, one screen. We've got. 444, The Last Day on Earth. Yeah, the Abel Ferrara. Yeah, Ferrara. Yeah. Uh, Break, whatever that is. The Deep Blue Sea, Musical Chairs, The Raid Redemption. Deep Blue Sea, new Terrence Davies movie with uh, Rachel Weisz. That's supposed to be excellent. Okay. Uh, Musical Chairs, The Raid Redemption, and The Trouble with Bliss. That's our... our... The Raid? What's The Raid? You, you guys haven't heard of it? I don't know if I've heard of it. No, what, what is that? It was. It's like this uh, martial arts movie. It, it played like the festival circuit last year, and everyone's like going crazy about it. Huh. Okay. Anybody I know it? it or? No, it's like a foreign. It's like a Thai, yeah, it's, Thailand. Yeah, it's a foreign flick. So okay. Cool. Uh, huh. Okay. Wow. The the poster looks a heck of a lot like Attack the Block. Huh. Interesting. Hooray. Okay. Ooh. Okay. That looks interesting. Okay. I might have to check that one out. All right. And then what is coming out on home video, sir? Uh, the uh, critically um, ignored Alvin and the Chipmunks Chipwrecked finally on DVD finally finally my life can go on for reasons uh, both dubious and respectable uh, The Bodyguard is now available on Blu-ray uh, are dubious. they going to charge extra for it? 
Well, I keep seeing it at Walmart for $5, the DVD, because there's so many copies of it. People keep keep getting this thing like hotcakes. And, and you know, I've always liked The Bodyguard. I think it's a good movie, and it's 20 years old now, so it's the 20th year anniversary of The Bodyguards. So that's fine. But, I mean, if they're just trying to milk it because of Whitney Houston's passing, I think that's a little cheap. But I'm anyway, sure that's what's happening. Okay. Anyway, I think it's a good movie. I think it's a pretty good thrill. It was written by Lawrence Kasdan, first screenplay I ever wrote. Um, also in release, a movie nobody needs to see, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. But it was Oscar-nominated, Barry. It was Oscar-nominated, yeah. And so was Dr. Doolittle. Ah! So, there you go. And uh, Click. That's right, Click. Though though Dr. Doolittle was Best Picture, Click was not up for Best Picture. <laughs> really? Yeah, Dr. Doolittle with uh, I missed that. Rex Harrison. Oh, okay. Okay. Walk with the animals. Okay, I thought you were talking animals. like... Not the Eddie Murphy okay. films. No, 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 no. You almost the, gave me a coronary sorry, for missing Sorry, sorry, no. The original okay. Dr. Doolittle, it was, up, it was up for Best Picture. I kid you not. It's a terrible film. Up for Best Picture. Um, movie that is, thankfully, uh, uh, Oscar, Oscar royalty, that would be Casablanca, available on the 70th anniversary limited collector's edition Blu-ray and DVD combo. Wow. I got the collector's edition DVD that they did a few years ago. Wow. So Does it come I'm, like I'm with a piano? Good. Key from no, but it does come with Casablanca like luggage tags and really. And, oh yeah, yeah. I oh, should break man. it out. I haven't. That's I haven't, sweet. I like to I see that. that thing on forever. A uh, movie Ethan and I really admired that would be David Cronenberg's The Dangerous Method. Um, I guess all I could say about the movie is I don't know. I, I can't. I don't know if the movie can live up to anyone's expectations of it because it is such a unique film and it is so dialogue-driven film written by Christopher Hampton. Um, but it's a rich film and the performances by Viggo Mortensen and Michael Fassbender are fantastic. So please check that out. Uh, Criterion, you've got uh, the Blu-ray release of A Night to Remember, the first and I think the best Titanic film. Excellent movie. In the Land of Blood and Honey, the directorial debut of Angelina Jolie. Very controversial film. In fact, I'm told that this thing is just like wall-to-wall rape scenes. All right. Very, very, very unpleasant. So prepare yourself. It's... It's not Tomb Raider. South Park season 15, good stuff. On Criterion, you've got the David Lean. It's, the collection itself is a box set called David Lean directs Noel Coward, including Blythe Spirit in one of my favorite movies, Brief Encounter. And on Blu-ray, you've got Sean Connery as Draco the Dragon in Dragonheart. You've got Corman's World, a documentary about the life and films of Roger Corman. I can't wait hmm, to see that. Okay. And then finally, a film from uh, one-time director Jean-Claude Van Damme, The Quest, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. I thought Damme. about putting that on the list. Jean-Claude Van Damme and Roger Moore. I, I, uh, yeah, not a great movie, but I'm glad I saw it. And i got to say, ambitious film. There's there's a lot of good stuff in it. He, okay. he could have cut it as a filmmaker if, uh, if acting, quote-unquote, didn't work out for him. Gotcha, gotcha. You know, I forgot to mention the crap title of last week. What was... Because for some inexplicable reason, we're getting that 70s show season one on Blu-ray. <laughs> Blu-ray. I'm pretty sure it was shot on tape. I'm just saying. I'm just throwing it out there. Mm. Okay. Like I said, if you want to shoot us an email, by all means do. Podcast, Ethan, Barry, or Dave, all at ScreenGeeks.com. Uh, we'll have some fun next week. I don't know what we're doing yet, but we'll we'll figure it out. I think that this was a, this is a fun one. I can't wait to see what the uh, feedback. Uh, is. We're doing the Amanda Bynes episode next week, right? Woohoo! There it I've is. Seen she's every the man. Movie she's done. I'm ready for that one. All right. Well. Wow. Let's just leave it on that. Until then, this is Dave. This is Barry. This is Reginald. Bell Johnson. Or Hudlin. Yes.